This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. My name is Philip Nguyen, and I'm the executive director for the Vietnamese American Roundtable. I'm also the co-chair of the Young Vietnamese Americans Committee for the Pivot, the Progressive Vietnamese American Network. I'm the MC for Accented Dialogues in Diaspora, hosted by the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network. I'm also the president of the Union of North American Vietnamese Student Associations, or UNAVSA, and I teach Asian American Studies in the Asian American Studies Department at San Francisco State University. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. So what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Oh, it's a, it's a tough question to, to start off with. But, um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, you know, trying to prepare to come on for this interview with you. I think for me, um, Vietnamese-ness or the idea of Vietnamese centers centers around silence, um, silence, suffering, and sacrifice for me, or at least that's how I've been able to understand my own sense of Vietnamese-ness. Um, coming from Vietnamese refugee parents, being born in the United States in Lancaster, California, um, and trying to understand, I think, for me, what, what love meant and how it could be translated between English and Vietnamese really informed um, the silences that I experienced growing up um, you know, at the dinner table when we're, we're not really so sure what to say in English or Vietnamese, um, this idea of sacrifice that motivated me to get an education, right, that my parents sacrificed um, everything and more leaving their country to come to the United States. Um, and this idea of suffering, right, I think there's this term in Vietnamese that's, um, that I hold pretty near and dear. It's uh, rank to you, right? And I, I don't think there's many, there are many more Vietnamese phrases than rank to you, right? So... That's a great uh, observation. That that word, you're right. There's no. Um, I'm trying to think of the proper translation for rangju, like try to endure. Yeah, it's like do your do your best to endure. But it also means something other, a little bit more sinister. Is like 
oh, that's your fault. Yeah, it's just kind of just like get get through it, right? Whatever it is, it, yeah. like, just that's that's on you, right? Yeah. So I guess it's a double edged sword, right? It speaks to both the resilience of the Vietnamese person and the the shit that you're kind of put through, right? Like yeah. having inheriting this identity. Yeah. So were you born and raised in Lancaster, California? Yeah, I was. I was. Um, it's a. It's a. For folks that don't know who where Lancaster is, it's a. It's an exurb um, that's about a mile or an hour and a half away from um, the Orange County Little Saigon. It's it's weird that um, it's not weird. It's it's interesting that you point out that it's because um, I'm thinking like uh, Lancaster to L.A. Right in my head, I'm right. like trying to map it out. But uh, yeah, it's an hour and a half from O.C. and it's kind of. As I was growing up, I remember Lancaster as being in the desert. Yeah, or no, for own. sure. It's the it's the boonies for sure. Um, and I think it makes more sense to relate it to where um, L.A. is. It's about, you know, it's, it's the northernmost part of L.A. Um, and it is in the desert. You know, the, the only landmark that usually folks point to is Magic Mountain is like 45 minutes away. Um, and wow. Lancaster is the desert beyond that. So you're further out than magic mountain further out than magic mountain how did your parents arrive in lancaster oh that's a solid question as well um it actually starts with i mean as all viet stories i think do it starts with my, my grandparents um when they had first come to the united states they actually ended up in in the valley um san fernando valley Rosita canoga park um after you know my, my, my dad, uh, my paternal side of the family, my dad is a, one of 10, um, one of 10. So, you know, having the family be in this place where there were a lot of Vietnamese folks, as well as a lot of other people of color that were mostly poor, right? Um, they saw a lot of gang violence. And my grandfather was the one, and this is what I've heard, is that he, he didn't want to raise the, the grandchildren in a place with so much violence and where they would be susceptible to joining a gang and, um, all of those all of those sorts of things right and so he took the family and moved them out to the boonies where land was cheap so it was both an economic um decision as well as one that was made on behalf of me before i was born but but there's nothing going on in lancaster well i'm, I'm figuring this is the 80s right i mean yes there's nothing in my mind and well, my mom bought and uncles bought like a little uh, a few acres out in lancaster back then and i remember them I remember the conversations clearly. It was like in the eighties how there was nothing out there, but they were planning on putting an airstrip out there, and they're doing a lot of development out there. And but there was nothing out there when they. So I'm thinking of your family and going there. Well, there's nothing out there. No industry, right, at the time. Yeah, there. I think mm, it was it was starting to the airstrip and and aeronautics was sort of the where the boom was going to happen. Yeah. Um. I mean, and fortunately, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years later, um, my dad and my uncles work in the aerospace industry. Interesting. Um, but then I think it was really just the the land was cheap and that there was the 14, which leads into the five. And you can get to L.A. in about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic. So. Well, and so what did they all do when they arrived in Lancaster, this massive family? Yeah, yeah. Um, they commuted to LA for work. They worked with um, on micro trips, um, and so the the most of the men, my uncles, worked in um, microchip processing factories uh, in the valley, and then uh, my aunts. One of them opened up a, a nail salon um, in Lancaster, uh, uh, and and they've moved from here 
from here to there, but generally a lot of the, the family or the aunts or the aunts that come from Vietnam and marry into the family, they worked at that nail salon. So yeah, yeah that's probably one of the OG nail salons in uh, Lancaster, right? Right. <laughs> Our family has been around in Lancaster for a hot minute that's since there aren't really other families. So and, and you guys are Buddhist or Catholic? We're, we're Buddhists. Yeah, we're a Buddhist family. And I think that kind of maybe played into it, too. I mean, I I feel like being um, actually thinking about it now, growing, growing up, like in addition to driving to the OC or Little Saigon, or to the valley where there are these pockets of Vietnamese community um, to get groceries or to, mainly to get groceries. We also went there to when it was around that or to to go to Jewel. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um before we get started, uh, I want to talk to you about uh, the piece that's on your um, your necklace. Yes. Tell me a little bit about it. Um, and for all the people that are not watching and are listening, uh, there's a beautiful, I think it's jade. Um, it's a, It looks like it's about two to three inches, fairly thick uh, jade piece that's on Philip's um, gold necklace. Let me... um, yeah, but this is, I'm describing it for the audio uh, for people who are just listening to the, the podcast. And um, I, ca I can't make out what it looks like from here, but it's a it's a prominent, uh, pretty big uh, um, kiwi, the gold kiwi color uh, jade. So, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, thanks for asking, Kenneth. Um, you know, I, I thought about coming up, well, coming onto this podcast and being amongst the the long list of guests that have been, that have graced this podcast, right? Um, and have been graced to be on this podcast. I was thinking about what it, you know, this question of Vietnamese-ness, and I, I, I felt like I should put on an outfit that evokes the sense of Kevin Nguyen, which is the millennial identity for the, you know, the most uh, most well-known image of Vietnamese identity, right? Um, but for me, I mean, this pendant really represents um, my, my relationship to family and my, and my my own faith. Um, growing up as in a, in a Buddhist family, um, this this chain was gifted to me by my mom. It's it's an upgrade from another chain that I had that also um, that I also wore with a jade pendant and the jade pendant for me, um, for my jade pendant, I, I think a lot of people wear the happy Buddha um, when you're kind of usually people don't really wear the happy Buddha, but um, or or fuck wangam, right? Um, or fuck ayida. But this one is one um, tande uh, wung or wang gong, um, also known as Guan Yu or the God of War. Um, and for me, you know, I, I grew up um, one of the things that is significant from from my experience growing up, and I think this negotiation with Vietnamese identity is how I how I was taught to relate my own sense of identity to that of my parents and my grandparents. Um, and for my mang doi, which is, you know, we're coming up on the year of the water tiger, right? Um, for me, I am a fire dog, I think, um, or yap dog is the is the term in Vietnamese, and um, for that uh, for that astrological sign um the the uh the protector or the the goddess or the god or savior for that um particular sign is uh mm. is guan yu or guan gong um and for me i think like for my 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 mom to give this to me um and for it to be passed on from my family i think it, it's he's meant to re represent brotherhood righteousness and i'm oftentimes reminded that um, whatever I'm I'm doing or however it is that I am making my way through life that I um uh right or mm -hmm. to stay away from yung sai right to to go towards those things that um have always represented the sense of righteousness right and to stay away from this um 
poor influences, right? Um, and and that the sense that you know there's there are the ancestors there that are watching over me and and taking care of me in this in this lifetime. So, you know, as I'm listening to your explanation, I realize how much tradition your mother and your family and a sense of sort of this identity pride uh, is being handed off to you um, in something physical. But at the same time, um, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, this sort of a symbolic, the symbolic uh, um, pendants. And and so I am starting to realize how important these things are. And I'm like, I need to go out and do this this weekend and buy something like this and explain it to my daughter and son at this early age and then give them something relatively cheap so they can wear and then upgrade it as you are describing it right, right now. <laughs> I think that's the, like, I, I also didn't, sort of didn't know the cultural significance at first, right? I thought it was just a shiny piece of jewelry that I could flex with my friends. Um, but it wasn't until I had actually, for a short moment in time, lost the, um, the other necklace that I had had. Um, and then when I had lost it, my, my parents then began to tell me more about the significance of it. And I realized, like, oh, shit, like, I really, you know, messed up. Um, but, but since then, you know, to, to feel like, this pendant and this 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 part of this thing that I wear each and every day, right, um, is my linkage to to family and and to my family history and heritage and identity. I think is um, has been a really powerful reminder to me, right. Um, and and you know, growing up, I don't know if other folks that are listening to the podcast also share this, but um, for me and my family, when I was ever in a moment where I felt tension or turmoil. Um, I was often reminded to mofuck, right? Or to, to mm -hmm. nimfuck. Um, and this, I mean, having a, a, a pretty, like a, a piece of jade um, to, to remind myself to be mindful of, of that um, and to know that I have the ancestors watching over me is really, that's powerful. really been helpful. Yeah. <laughs> really powerful. You know, uh, I w was in the opposite camp. I always saw like people wearing pendants and, and this type of stuff as I was growing up as a sign of their Vietnamese-ness. And mm -hmm. I was repelled by that because I wanted to be more assimilated to the to the white culture. And so I always shied away and, and I shut that part of my brain off and I look at you now and now I'm I'm like, I want to be part of this, you know, th this way of remembering um, my ancestors and being reminded of the power that are uh, that we what did I read? I think something like. 12 generations into you being manufactured there's mm -hmm. like 4000 people if you do the math it took 4000 people or whatever to get to your one person um if you did like a, a reverse family tree a, a reverse right. pyramid going up it's like 4000 so you're basically wearing the sort of the energy of you know that reverse pyramid um on your body and i think that that makes so much sense and i'm gonna start yeah definitely uh, i mean i'm getting the chills as you're saying this too right like this talk about the ancestors and the folks that came before us um i, I mean i'm i'm in i studied ethnic studies and asian american studies and one of the kind of sayings that we um that that is taught is uh no history no self right like if we don't have our history there's no sense of self that we can um, relate to or identify with and that if we know our own history then um, in that way it empowers us to learn about and know more about ourselves and how we operate in the world so um the weight the weight of that carries i, I think I, I feel like i carry with me and it hangs very heavily on my neck too but um and, and you know yes. as, 
as it should, because if you think about like the colonial or the Western powers, you know, the first thing they need to do is they need to strip you of your history. You need to be completely void of knowing anything about your predecessors and, you know, like the Indian American Indians, you know, let's wipe you all out. Uh, We'll start with the history books and, you know, erase that history. So there's no 4,000 people, you know, reverse pyramid uh, sitting on that one pinnacle of the person that's still alive. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think, oh my gosh, yeah, that sense of erasure that we we feel like, and I mean, especially, I mean, for between me and you, right, like growing up in a, a place and thinking of uh, Vietnamese as something that you should throw away or not really think about often, right, or not take pride in, and this feeling of looking to assimilate, right, like even though I, I feel like I was raised in a pretty um, traditional family, I, I didn't feel that that sense of pride when I went out to, to school, right, where I was oftentimes the only Vietnamese person. Um, and I think in that same, in a similar vein, um, to know that I, I feel really fortunate to be able to wear jewelry like this, because so many of our, um, our parents, our aunts, uncles, predecessors, um, had to give this up when they became refugees, right, or had to sell it to yeah. gain, gain passage to the United States and elsewhere in the diaspora. Well, I'm just going to say it right now. Um, from here on out, if you guys see me uh, busting out uh, Jade on 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 these uh, podcasts, you know where it came from first, which is here with Philip uh, Philip Wing. So just to put it out there, I'm I'm definitely going to start looking into it this year. I think it's a, a wonderful. I, you just like literally turned me on to a new thing um, that that I'm so excited to to start thinking about. My my wife is really into to, to jewelry and I've just always, you know, been not a jewelry person uh ever. I just, you know, always like plain, but I look at the how you have it and I'm just like envisioning on my neck and I'm like that would be such a badass uh a piece. <laughs> you know, I mean badass in every which way. I mean, it's like this for me it's like this like finally like you can stand proud. I can stand proud and and wear something like this and go, this is like the culture of, of where, you know, because um, my uncles wear them. Yeah, I have yeah. family members that wear this, you know, and I've always just been like that guy. I was born in the United States. I don't wear stuff like that. No, this, you know, there has to be this rebirth, I think, for me. Um, and then now as a tradition to my children, upgrading them maybe every five years and right, right. every four years or something like that, sitting them down and creating this ritual, uh, ritualized situation, maybe during that to, to, to maybe that's what I would do. And in, in a few weeks, you know, when that comes around, get this pendant and, um, and, and, and kind of anoint them and, and anoint myself with my own, you know, choice. Yeah. And I, Oh, anoint, that's a beautiful word to use. And I think there's a, you know, a sense of that, in your family, you can be royalty, right? Yes. Connected to royalty. And I, I mean, that's also why we both share the same last name, Wing, right? Um, and, you know, I, I also m- maybe want to add a qualifier that like, I mean, on, on the podcast, and I think as I'm thinking about Vietnamese-ness, I want to be reminded and I'm looking at myself with the pendant and like, damn, like if my mom saw me with this, she, she might not be so happy because I'm trying to like, it's like quang too much, right? It's like showing up. And, and so I, wanna, I would also want to say that, um, you know, you're not going to find me at the club rocking the chain out um and, and i and i think it's it's like doing right or like uh dependent on the situation yes um in 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 times for for that sort of meaningfulness to transcend right um because i do think that there are a lot of folks right when we're thinking about like folks in the younger generation that might not understand their history or people who are trying to uh 
buy into that Asian Asian look, right? Like they'll they're wear the jade, the jade piece in the chain. And um we, we don't want that, right? Like we're doing this for the culture, we're doing this for ourselves and for our families. So yeah. I've never had permission to do it. Now I do. Now I have a, I know. a story, <laughs> uh, an origin story, like, you know, um, because truth be told, you and I worked on that for like two, three minutes before we started rolling yeah. today. And I thought, wow, I'm like really in, I find myself really engaged in showcasing that um, and, and not have any confusing backgrounds or competing, not confusing, but competing backgrounds to show off the piece. And right. I found myself like really into it. I was like, yo, we got to really, you know, make this a, and then here we are talking about it for all this time. And I, I love it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we want to talk about the two, three minutes before the, the start of the podcast, you know, I was sure. wearing this, I was wearing this shirt. Um, it was designed by this guy, Matthew Wu, who designed shirts based on um, OG 80s, 90s pop culture. Uh, it had Scotting Wing on it. And Scotting Wing is one of the uh, World Series of Poker one of the OG like Vietnamese poker players. And he would say like, you know, you call it and it's all over baby, right? And you would see him on TV. I, I remember seeing on, him on TV watching um, World Series of Poker. Uh, and he would be rocking like three, four of these like thick, like thick chains, right? Mm -hmm. And his like shades and his like, you know, his perm. And he's sitting there like making the craziest all in bets. And for a long time, you know, that was my association with the the Vietnamese uncle, right? That like yeah. rocked the chains or the Vietnamese guy that was, you know, sipping on a Heineken. Um, and, it, and it wasn't for a long time until I, I think I had that gentle mother's touch to explain to me the significance of why, why we wear things like this, right? Um, especially in a place I think where, you know, an adopted homeland where we might feel like we need, we might need that protection, right? Um, I think speaks volumes to, the experience of a refugee family in the United States or in the diaspora. So. That's powerful. So I, I'm beginning to understand um, where you're getting all of this uh, activist spirit from um, sp starting to materialize. But can you give me some background? I mean, is it a family thing or is it, uh, you know, you bumped into a mentor when you were like uh, 13 and you just started to have this like uh, idea to one day really get into the activist side of um, living in, in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question, Kenneth. I I would definitely not attribute, like I would, but I wouldn't, um, the sense of activism to my parents or my family. Um, I would say that it happened along the way and at um, when I started my undergraduate uh, career, undergraduate journey uh, at UC Berkeley. Um, there was the first time I, I went away from home um, I remember the process of applying to Berkeley. I, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I had uncles that told me to study um, business or biology or one of the traditional fields that, um, you know, Vietnamese parents would be proud of. And um, I remember I was, in, I was in Key Club and there were a couple of other um, Vietnamese American students that had a little bit more um, sens Vietnamese sensibility. Um, and one of them had shared with me this book um, that was called I Love Yous Are for White People. And it's by Lak Su. Lak Su. Yes. Um, and at that same time, you know, my at home, my mom was watching SBTN like nonstop. My parents were watching SBTN nonstop. And um, Laksu came on a show with Christine Sa and he was talking about like growing up in East L.A. Um, and, and my mom, you know, called me into the, the living room and was like, hey, like there's this guy that kind of looks like you and he's kind of talks like you. And, you know, he I think Laksu was a um, 
he had a, he had like a, a graduate degree and, his, and my mom was like, why don't you do something like him? Right. Like, why don't you write books? And I'm like, I, I don't know if I can write books, but I'll go ahead and, you know, I'll continue to read this one. I'll finish reading this one. Um, and, and through the course of the book began to, you know, really think about what it meant, what, what love meant, right? Um, how I love yous are for white people, how in the Vietnamese American family, we don't really talk about love, right? Um, and so kind of fast forward to my experience at Berkeley and this, um, I mean, you attribute the, uh, you, you meant, you call it that this activist spirit, right? But I, I still feel a little bit uh, of wariness trying to, uh, to claim that that identity as an activist because I, I, I think about so many activists like, like Yuri, like Grace Lee Boggs, um, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., whose day is coming up soon, right? Um, folks that came before me that I feel like did such important work. Um, I would say that this part of me evolved, right? Um, when I was able to share this sensibility of what it meant to be Vietnamese American or Southeast Asian American or just Asian American, to think about these things like, like love and, and how we understood love um, across generations and to be able to share that during my student organizing experience at Berkeley. Um, I, I participated in a couple of, I wasn't in VSA yet then, um, but I was uh, in, a, in a program that helped uh, get uh, high school students into, uh, into college. Um, and so being able to share that experience to tie it back to these, uh, this idea of the model minority, right? And to know that there was this legacy of Asian American activists that had come before me, right? I, I decided on a whim to apply as an Asian American studies major. And I think that's what really sets off my, um, my own trajectory as I think in, an educator first, and then and maybe an activist and advocate um, and artist. So wait, uh, since we're going to talk about, I think we're, we'll get into the VSA part of our discussion first. But before we get there, when did you join a VSA at Berkeley? Yeah, ooh, um, I didn't get involved into in VSA until after I graduated from Whoa. Berkeley. So wait a minute, four years at Berkeley, and you okay? This is significant. Why <laughs> didn't you? Why didn't you join any Vietnamese student unions or associations at your time at Berkeley? Yeah, ooh, um, it's funny because I'm the president of UNAVSA <laughs> now. Uh, yes, it's I, ironic. When I went, I remember going to freshman year. You know, the first week of school, all the clubs are having their general meeting, their orientations. Um, I remember going to a VSA meeting along with the other kind of AEPI related org meetings, um, going to the meeting and feeling like it was whack. <laughs> like this wasn't like all the all the people that were there and what they were talking about. And this I think the thing that really threw me off about the meeting was this NTM program right, that they had. Um, and it's a mentorship program that a lot of VSAs had. But for me as a freshman then to come from my, the family that I came from and to still be in this process of trying to figure out what Vietnamese identity meant, to go into a, this space and then have people call themselves anti-M, right? It felt really off-putting to me because that was a, those were terms that I feel like were reserved for my family, right? Um, and, and which, who, whom I was really close to. And so, um, I, I stayed away from VSA. Um, I, I, I was really close to the people there, but I really had gotten involved in organizing with um, the broader AAPI community, student community at Berkeley, and um, with SAS, the Southeast Asian Student Coalition, um, that brought together folks that were tied together, tied or tethered to this history of the wars in Southeast Asia, right? Um, and so 
it wasn't until after I graduated, I realized that they also had a, a high school youth mentorship program um, called Vision that uh, they had reached out to me to be a mentor for, and I had led a workshop um, up for that program. Uh, and when I was able to lead a workshop for that program, I, I realized a little bit and I, I kind of let my, um, I let myself lean into that Vietnamese experience, student experience a little bit more. Um, and from then I, I kind of realized, you know, what the significance of having this, uh, things like that in an NTM program or a mentorship program or trying to foster the sense of um, family away from your, uh, you know, biological family, how important that was for my own experience of identity, so. Well, I'm, I'm very surprised that uh, that one meeting through you would be able to throw you off or anybody off, you know, um, and it makes sense. I, I, I get it. And it's not like you didn't partake in anything uh, out. I mean, I think it, it almost sounds like you took a maybe a, a 30,000 feet view uh, of <laughs> the right of the AAPI sort of situation rather than a very myopic uh, being in a, uh, a tighter uh, cultural space like the Vietnamese Student Association. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure if I was ready to be in a Vietnamese student association yet. Right. Like I, I grew up on the MySpace, like Viet Pride kind of um, era. Right. Um, listening to, to Vietnamese American rappers uh, like Kanya and Phong, Phong Lai. Right. And I, I kind of associated that my Vietnamese-ness with that um, somewhere between that and my parents. And so to see all these uh, Vietnamese students, um, you know, also speaking Vietnamese to each other, like that was really weird to me then. Right, because like that was also something that was just reserved for my family, and none of my friends really spoke Vietnamese to each other or knew Vietnamese. So, interesting. Phong Lai, <laughs> is that the rapper who is sort of uh, who just flies off the handle with all like this? He's very irreverent. Is that the one? I, I think he's. I think he's like into crypto and like NFTs or something now. Um, yeah, I mean, he had this song. Oh man, and I remember like rolling up in the the Honda Odyssey with my my pops, and I'd be like, "Hey, like, have you have you heard this kind of Vietnamese music?" I would play Phong Lai, and you know, immediately be like, "Hey, that can you hear about it? Yeah, you got And I was like, "Wait a minute, like, it's not right. Like, it's a Vietnamese rapper, yeah. but he's rapping about things like late thing Jagai and my, That's you him. know, I, right? And and my my dad, like, you know, he looked at me and he was like, right? Like, do you really know like what mm -hmm. this means?" And so I didn't, I thought it sounded dope. And it wasn't until later that I realized, right? Like, I mean, his stuff is so <laughs> vulgar and like, you know, my brother likes that kind of stuff. You know, he's, uh, he's into the really irreverent, uh, no holds bar and Fong Lei right. was doing that guy was so out there and, uh, but in a very, he was so creative, such a creative, uh, but yeah, his stuff was like crossing the line. I mean, constantly. Yeah, and now that I'm thinking about it too, like I was talking about how my my family ended up in Lancaster to get away from you know gang gang life and gang uh, violence, and these guys had a song that's called Vietnamese Gang, right? Um, where they literally say like "yik me thang nào ta không biết," right? And I'm like, oh man, like that sounded dope then, but thinking about it now, maybe it was a good thing to you know that my my parents kind of winged me to stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> When, when I was growing up, I we grew up about a mile away from USC and USC is in a mm. rough, rough neighborhood. And all I remember was like, there was like these neighborhood Vietnamese women who um, were like basically aunts bordering, older sister bordering borderline aunts to me. And they attended USC and they were close friends, you know, in the neighborhood that, that I grew up in. And 
I remember they would go to uh, the USC VSA parties. And from <clears> that point on, I was like maybe 12, 14, always said, when I get to college, if I ever get there, I am definitely going to be part of that because Wait, you said the ants were coming to these VSA parties. Yeah, because I was a young kid and the these older women, they were, um, you know, they were probably 18 at the time. Yeah, they were right. 18 and I was like 12, 14, whatever. And I remember, you know, they lived a block away, two blocks away, and we had 30 people in our house. So they would make friends with, you know, we were all friends. And I would right. remember that they would go to these parties and at 12 or 13, 14, we were old enough to sort of want a party, my brother and I, and we wanted to go. Right. We would show up and, you know, obviously everybody's a lot older, six years older. But um, I remember the camaraderie. It was, yeah, and again, it was, they only spoke Vietnamese there too. It wasn't, you know, right. it, yeah, it was in the 80s. And uh, I, I've always wanted to be a part of it, no, no matter what. But as I got a little older, um, it, you know, that meaning changes, right? That meaning, um, you know, for somebody who uh, I just got out of the military, when I got back into US, when I got to USC, uh, mm -hmm. it was it was different. But uh, my brother and I were very very active. You know, he ended up becoming the president of uh, VSA for uh, his third or fourth year at USC. Oh wow! Oh, so we share a Vietnamese uh, VSA lineage. Yeah, oh, yeah, a little we, bit there. Deep. Yeah. Oh, we're we're you know we're big VSA guys. Um, we loved it, and um, across across the city was UCLA and. A lot of the people without UCLA and, you know, uh, I know from those years, I mean, sometimes I'm, we're, we're, you know, in companies together, working with each other as a result of VSA. So it's a very powerful network um, that I actually want to talk to you about uh, with with this whole uh, UVSA. So yeah. uh, how did you get involved uh, with it uh, after um or, or whenever, when, when did you get involved with it? Yeah. I'm like, let me, let me hit, hit you with the timeline. It was, um, 20, I graduated from with my undergrad in the fall of 2016. Um, so got this degree in Asian American studies, ethnic studies, not really sure what I wanted to do. I was thinking about going to grad school. And at the same time, um, Trump was elected. Right. And I, I think at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, um, I started to really think about what my role was, um, not in allowing that to happen, but if, if I could prevent something of that scale to happen again, right? Um, and that's actually, you know, kind of as a precursor to my VSA experience that led me to find um, uh, and Pivot, the Progressive Vietnamese American Organization. And in 2017, I think they were just starting and they were Wait, starting how, this. How did you find him? Sorry. How did you find him? Ooh. Um, there's this blog, Angry Asian Man, that I would uh, frequent. Phil Yu's? And so they, yeah, Phil Yu's blog. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they had done a profile on uh, Um, And he was talking about like this, this Vietnamese resistance, right? And the beating heart of ethnic studies in me was like, all right, like if, if we're in for a revolution, if we're in for a resistance, then not count me in, right? Like, because I, I have high tai jong, right? Like I, I am free, I have time. And I'm really thinking about like, at this point, um, as I'm kind of coming in, in more into my Vietnamese identity, right, um, having been three, four years away from home, I'm like, what, what does community look like? Um, and so I, I sent a cold email to, to him, had a chance to talk with him, and then um, joined Pivot. And so since, since then, I, I've been part of the, this youth, their youth arm, youth engagement arm, 
um, to get folks civically engaged, but also to, to do some, some electoral work, right? Um, especially at, because at that point in time, and just some more context is that, you know, as a part of the, the Young Vietnamese Americans Committee, we had put together this Young Vietnamese American Survey. And we try to survey as many um, Vietnamese folks from ages like 18 to 35 about like what they cared about politically, right? Um, because there was this overwhelming sense that like Vietnamese Americans were supporting um, the Republican Party and reporting, uh, supporting Trump. And so we, we ended up doing that survey. And the thing that had stuck out was that um, Vietnamese American youth were generally apathetic to politics, right? For one reason or another, they weren't looking to get involved. Um, and for me, I think that was, I think it was shocking to me at first, right? Because a lot of our outreach we did to the VSAs, right? The individual VSAs at colleges, regional VSAs and, and to UNAFSA. And I was thinking like, wow, like there are all these Vietnamese people, Vietnamese students um, getting together to organize, right? Um, and yet they, they feel the sense of like apathy towards like a lot of what I've had felt was one of the most pressing issues of, of that time, right? Um, and, and also kind of linking it back to my own history, you know, my, my grandfather was uh, a colonel colonel uh, in the um, Vietnam Cong Hoa, and he had also gone to, um, oh man, I forget the name, but it's like the, the officer school um, like a Siguang school or something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Siguang Dalak, Bobby or Bobby. Bobby or something. Dalak. Yes. So That's I like had grown up. The West Point of Vietnam. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. And so growing up, and then my, my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who I, um, I was, I grew very close with, um, she was a young Biu or like a, a representative, um, in the government. And so for me and my family, and I, I'm sure, well, I, I assume, I'm sure for other Vietnamese American families, right? Like there is this like very inherent political tie, like the, the political and the personal for us has always been intertwined. And so, um, so, you know, kind of going back to the survey and the results, seeing that folks were apathetic, I was like, oh damn, like, I think we need to do something about this, right? And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna, sh like for the folks that are watching, like this is, um, I'm showing a, uh, on my wall, there's a Vietnamese, uh, or the Vietnamese heritage flag hanging in. Um, I, I received it from my dad when I had first left for college. And he was like, you know, um, take care of this, right? And we had, we had had it in a box at our house for a long time and he had passed it on to me. Um, and so I, I you know, I'm, I'm looking at this flag, I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm thinking about my Vietnamese-ness and what this flag represents and how it also represents the diaspora um, and so as a part of Pivot, I put together a workshop on Vietnamese American political identity, um, which, is some, which is something that I think at that time we, we hadn't really had a chance to talk about in, amongst the student space. Um, and while I was applying to uh, graduate school and ended up getting into and started to attend uh, my master's program in Asian American studies at San Francisco State, that's I think when I, became, when I kind of assumed this role of um, I felt more comfortable being referred to as a mentor in the Vietnamese American community space. Um, and I started to apply for workshops on behalf of Pivot to present on Vietnamese American political identity. Um, and so that's how I kind of found myself uh, in NorCal UVSA at, the, at their summit. And then slowly um, was able to present, I think in, in the Midwest, um, in, in Louisiana at the, uh, Oh, not Louisiana, in Georgia at the UNAFSA conference um, then. And then since then I, I had been on, you know, this, this workshop tour 
where I was talking to young Vietnamese students about the sense of apathy that we generally had as a community about how our identity as Vietnamese Americans, as um, descendants of refugees was inherently political and how in that way, um, maybe that, that motivation, that history, that heritage would motivate us to um, become civically engaged, right? Because I think, you know, working with the UVSA as UNAFSA, we're working in a 501c3 nonprofit space, Pivot is a C4. Um, and so a lot of that youth engagement really um, was through the vehicle of being civically engaged, getting people out to vote and informing people about, um, you know, the, the issues that we felt mattered. Uh, real quick, what's a C4? It's a it's a nonprofit organization that is uh, allowed to do political electoral work. Oh wow, that's very specific. There's probably yeah. different campaign, you know, all of that stuff associated right, with right. C4. Got it. Never heard of it. Yeah, I mean, we usually hear about 501c3, C3, nonprofits, yeah. right? Um, and a lot of the VSAs, I think, well, not the school ones or the, but the regional ones in UNAFSA are their stand are their own standalone standalone 501c3 nonprofits. So. Now, uh, uh, let me do a quick segue over to who you call Chutong, which is interesting because, uh, you know, I actually thought you were like my age. Um, I can't say that to a woman, but I could say that to another man um, because, you know, I, I don't think you'd be offended uh, by, mm -hmm. by saying that you look a lot older and you carry yourself a, a lot older. Um, I actually thought you were in your 40s. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Had no idea. I was doing the math. I was like, okay, 2016, you were probably 22 and you're not even 28, 29 yet, are you? Yeah, I'm 27 this year, turning 28 oh, next year. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> You've accomplished so much, Philip. Um, yeah, because you call him Chutong, and I'm like, that's so weird. But uh, going back to Chutong, um, so uh, I would probably be calling him Aintong. I've never had a conversation. We've probably uh, exchanged some messages. Uh, but uh, Aintong is um, Viet Thanh Nguyen's older brother, correct? Yes, yes, correct. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that uh, he's a doctor, and uh, he's held some fairly high positions uh, beyond his uh, being a doctor professionally. Um, it, it, hi, what I mean is, you know, um, in his role as a medical doctor, he's, you know, I think he's been over at the NIH and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And I, and, and I think actually, um, thinking back to it, he was, he was featured on angry Asian man to use blog, um, because he was part of the, uh, a white house, uh, AAPI commission. He was the commissioner, um, the, the commissioner that had stepped down, um, once Trump had been elected. And when he had stepped down from um, the White House in his, you know, in his role, uh, that's when he started Pivot. What the hell did their parents feed them? Honestly, yeah. They, I mean, he's also, I mean, he's, he's Harvard educated, Ivy League educated and teaching at UCSF. And, you know, we, we all know uh, Anvia is a, and it's weird because I, I wouldn't call Viet and Jiu uh, Viet because I, I, I don't think we have that kind of relationship, but um and, and Viet is a you know obviously a Pulitzer Prize winner but I, I would say at that same time while um Jutong was getting that uh recognition at, from stepping down at the White House that's when you know and Viet was winning the sympathizer uh winning the Pulitzer for the sympathizer right and so I I felt that call right this moment of Vietnamese-ness happening in the mainstream mm -hmm. and I was like if I'm not a part of it now, I'm going to miss the wave, right? So yeah, you're right in the heart of it. You literally are right in the heart of it with uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen and um, his brother Anh Tung. You know, it's uh, your right place, right time, right 
time in history, all of it. And to be so young to witness it. I mean, it's like uh, to be in the mix with all these amazing brothers that or uncles, but you don't right. <laughs> You're We've also drank a lot of cognac together on that accident and show too. So <laughs> more like uncles. <laughs> yes, that's how we met the first time you and I um, through one of these uh, shows that you. Um, but we, we'll get into that. I, right. I want to. Um, I want to ask you about the different levels of um, Vietnamese student associations because I've always been interested in that. I've seen uh, UNAFSA, UVSA. I've seen uh, VSA, VSU all of these different abbreviations, but I kind of wanted to ask you like today, what are the biggest umbrella organizations and then how does it break down from there and how how does it, the ecosystem work together? Yes, and I would lean into that, um, is that the VSA space, as we refer to it, um, is, is definitely an ecosystem. Um, I wouldn't, it's a, it's, it's a network more so than an umbrella. Um, I would say that well, starting from UNAFSA, which is uh, the organization that I'm a part of that I represent as its president, um, it stands for the Union of North American Vietnamese Student Associations. So um, Vietnamese students uh, across North America, United States and Canada um, com compose the constituency of that UNAFSA uh, represents and supports. And so, you know, UNAFSA generally in, in its history uh, has been fairly well known for the UNAFSA conference. Um, which is which rotates in location um, throughout North America, um, and and so UNAFSA itself is a standalone five hundred one c three organization, um, and a part of our organizational structure is that we have uh, regional representatives, and so the, I think there are fourteen regions um, across North America um, that have a stake and say um, in the representation of UNAFSA and its decision making. So I was elected by a representatives from each of these. Uh, 14 regions um, and, and the location of the conference is determined by, you know, the, these representatives. And so um, it, on the regional level, right, so there are a couple of regions to name them. There's SoCal, NorCal, um, the South, which is composed of Texas, Oklahoma. Um, there's also the Midwest, uh, there's Eastern and Western Canada, there's Mid-Atlantic. Um, North, the Northeast. I mean, they're, they're different regions across mm -hmm. North America uh, and they're represented by, their Vietnamese students are represented by uh, regional UVSAs. Um, and those UVSAs are uh, United Vietnamese Student Associations. Um, some of them are, are also referred to as intercollegiate Vietnamese student associations. And so depending on which region we're talking about, um, they might have different names, but generally, um, regionally, Vietnamese student associations are organized depending on their, their region. Um, and oftentimes those individual regions for those that support Vietnamese, both Vietnamese students, young professionals, and communities in those areas um, are their own uh, 501c3, 501c3 nonprofits as well. Um, and then on a, on a more micro level, you know, we have the individual uh, Vietnamese student associations, VSAs, or Vietnamese student unions, VSUs, depending on um, you know which which school we're talking about, uh, where individuals at these universities are you know participating in uh, a student organization at their university, right? And that student organization can opt into being a part of this regional representation and have representation um, within UNAPSA, this North American this org that represents North American Vietnamese students. Got that it. was kind of a long-winded answer, but that's how my that's my sense of um, how the structure, how that ecosystem works, and 
you know, at the end of the day, I feel like we we find ourselves on things like subtle Viet trades and subtle VSA trades um, now in the virtual era. Um, but prior to the pandemic, a lot of what I had seen and I think what had motivated me to get involved in this work too is that um, each of the individual regions has their own leadership summit or leadership conference um, where they bring together like local and national workshop hosts, uh, guests, keynote speakers, um, students from across these different regions and across these different spaces to, um, to interact with each other, um, to, to get together, right? So to be able to learn and understand more about the Vietnamese American, uh, Vietnamese North American identity and experience. Um, and I think, you know, kind of talking to uh, the experience that you had in, in that house next to USC with the VSAs, right? I, I think a lot of these uh, connections are really built over this idea of a thumbso, right? Because at the end of most of these Vietnamese VSA um, conferences, right, after programming hours are over or, you know, at, at night in the hotel, you know, and I, I don't know officially if I'm supposed to say this, but um, there, there may, there might be parties or drinking involved, right? And there might be like these, these spaces where we're able to kind of um, connect to each other on a much more intimate level, um, in in the form of a thamsu, which is I feel like how how we heal, honestly, um, and how we better understand who we are and where we come from um, is to be able to to talk about those things that matter to us um, in a way that where we don't feel judged, right? And in a way where we feel like we don't need to really explain too much about who we are and where we come from to each other. And so um, the VSA space in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a powerful, um, that's a powerful opportunity um, that we can afford the young people that, uh, that you know, it, we live in a place where it's, we live in, the wor a world in Northern America where it's predominantly white and to be right. offered this safe, um, I would say opportunity um, to open up and, and be who we want to be uh, is a very, it's a vital thing to life almost. Right. And it's, it's surreal too. Excuse yeah. me. Oftentimes I, I think it's surreal. I think, um, one of the, yeah. one of the first um, places that I had gone to as a part of pivot um to, to do this workshop on Vietnamese American political identity was in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, the Midwest re region was having a, a, their conference called VIA One and um, to, to meet folks from Ohio and from Nebraska and from Minnesota and to, to know that their experience was so similar to mine. Um, someone having grown up in you know, Southern California was, I mean, I, I, it was truly breathtaking. It, it's, it feels very strange when you have that sense of, you know, that sense of camaraderie um, with folks that you would imagine, you would think, you know, they grew up in such a different place that they would be so different from you. Yeah, but there's so much commonality and stickiness uh, within our, you know, the, the things that we share. Right. So um, you, all of a sudden, I mean, I'm like, uh, jump a few years into this and you're the president of uh, this massive organization. How did that happen? Yeah, then uh, I think that's my that's my answer to that. Um, I I think a lot of it had to do with the pandemic, and I think a lot of it has had to do with just um, in the past couple of years. From my observation, we've seen a lot of political vitriol, and we've seen a lot of division happen um, with respect to politics, uh, not just among Vietnamese. Well, 
that have pervaded in a lot of ways the relationships between the Vietnamese child of refugee immigrants and their parents, right? Um, we know that misinformation, disinformation has uh, made its way into our families. Um, and we also know that being in the, the circumstances of the pandemic have um, inflated or exacerbated these this, the impact of misinformation. And so uh, it was right before, actually, no, it was, it was um, I've been, this is my second year of being the president of UNAFSA. And so um, there was a special, special election that was called because um, prior to me, okay, so backtracking at the last in-person conference that we had had that was um, held in Vancouver, Canada, uh, we had only, UNAFSA had only elected a, an external vice president and an internal vice president. And so um, the positions of president, treasurer, and secretary were vacant. Um, and since then, the pandemic hit. And I think the, for, from my observation, the, the sort of moral compass or the objective or purpose of UNAFSA or the VSA space, I think, was um, in a flurry because at the same time, this VSA space had been um, faced with a lot of uh, difficulty, especially when it came to um, conversations around Black Lives Matter, around um, uh, sexual or gender and sexuality, um, and, and generally around the, the safety of a lot of the members of the community. And so for me um, to have been, most of my participation was as a workshop presenter. Um, and at that time I was on the, uh, as a part of the executive board for the um, Northern California region. Um, I, I felt like there was this call to action, this call to responsibility um, to apply, um, to, to run for election as its president, um, and to hopefully push UNAFSA um, to, to where I felt like we could have the most impact, right, and reach the most people, um, and really begin to talk about these, these issues that I really have an impact in the communities that we're a part of, right, beyond just being Vietnamese students getting together because we're Vietnamese, right? I think there's more of a purpose that can be had within the Vietnamese Student Association space when we think about how we interact in the world as Vietnamese people. Um, and so I took it upon myself and utilized, uh, well, I took it upon myself to have um, critical self-consciousness be a part of my, my platform when I ran for president. Um, and, it, and it just so happened to, to allow me to take on this position and to lead the organization to what I hope will be um, great success. Uh, and, and I think it has been, you know, and just as a, as a sort of a, a bit of a recap for UNAFSA thus far, you know, we, for the past two years, we've had virtual conferences that have amassed over a couple hundred of Vietnamese students from across North America um, and across the world actually attending um, with, with workshop presenters and with keynote speakers that have represented a much more diverse um, and multifaceted Vietnamese diasporic experience. And so um, one of the questions that I think about now is UNAFSA has traditionally been confined to North America. Um, is there a possibility for UNAFSA to be more of a diasporic um, organization? Is there a possibility for us to bring together Vietnamese students, young professionals, alumni um, from across the globe in the diaspora to be able to organize and have these conversations and to be able to thumbs with each other um, and learn from one another? So I hear you that's how I kind of ended up here. <laughs> yeah, I hear you changing the name to something like UD uh, VSA or something like that. You right. Know, diaspora. <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, it's it's kind of limiting, right? At the, at at where it's at right now with UNAFSA, the just the Union of North American, right? Uh, VSA. So, yeah, and I, I mean the our identities are of course different, right? Like we can't say that um, someone from the United States is going to be share the same identity as someone that's a Vietnamese Australian or um, someone who's Vietnamese French, but. Uh, in, in sort of my understanding of the history of UNASA and how we were founded, we, we took the, the current form that we have as an organization from um, Vietnamese student associations that had started in, in places like France and Australia and kind of mobilized around that. Um, so if we could do that then when a lot of us were coming, uh, had, had been coming as refugees, right? Like looking and looking to try to carve out these spaces to build community, you know, why why wouldn't be, we be able to do that in a time like now when, um, you know, we're we're hyper connected virtually, right? Um, but that's sort of long term. At this point, you know, I, I think it's been really successful that UNASA has been able to talk about things like Black Lives Matter, to talk about things like the insurrection um, and the presence of you know the Vietnamese heritage flag at the Capitol, um, and and it's kind of marked this cultural shift in. Um, the heart of Vietnamese, the, the diaspora, the student diaspora, right? Um, and, and one more, one thing that I would like to highlight about that, you know, UNAFSA also raises a lot of money for um, nonprofit beneficiaries. We have this project called the Collective uh, Philanthropy Project, where all of the related VSAs to UNAFSA um, raise money towards a single beneficiary. And in the past, it's been beneficiaries that have been involved in um, work in Vietnam, um, in the homeland. Uh, we've raised, I mean, up to $100,000, $150,000, right? Um, and just in this past year, the UNAFSA constituency has uh, selected the Asian Prisoner Support Committee, which does work um, with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated and um, deportees, right? Those, so that, this, these communities, um, as this collective uh, philanthropy project beneficiary. And so we're really seeing a shift in what, what it is that we care about as an organization and a, as a community and what it is that we do. Um, so it's really, I, I think it's really inspiring. <laughs> it is, it really is. Have you um, been to a UNAFSA uh, event uh, in person? Yes, yes. I mean, not in my role as, a pre as right, the president. Of course. But as a, as a workshop presenter and as a um, family family head and they're fun I, yes I, I went i think in 2011 or 12 in denver yeah we went to go promote a movie and um i was so inspired but there was a lot of people it wasn't just a couple of hundred kids it was like a lot right 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 I mean, yeah and i mean it's it can i think the largest nasa conference may have been like at least maybe a thousand up to a thousand yeah it was in my memory it was easily like at that size it was at a convention center or something like at that um at on that scale uh in denver and um it, it was uh it was so refreshing to see so many vietnamese kids um at that time being so involved and 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 uh you know activated you know right and i i might i might also want to add that you know it's, it isn't it really isn't just about this civic or political work it's also a lot of just being able to express and experience culture. Um, you know, one of the mainstays of all VSAs, I feel like is a culture show or a culture night. Um, and in a lot of ways, I saw that as a, 
kind of re- an emulation of the Paris by Night and the Jungtam Asia and the mm-hmm. you know um, those types sorts of shows that we had grown up watching. Um, to be able to recreate that from a younger generation's experience has been really affirming to me too. too. Do you know if that's like mainly in our community? Is it like that in the Filipino or Persian or, you know, other communities? Ooh. Um, This talent show sort of like hodgepodge. Right, like a variety show. Yeah, because my brother and I really loved it. We we really got into it. My brother was like uh, one of the first guys to put... um, he would do these commercials, uh, video. Uh, I, I think it was like one of the first shows we've ever seen, you know, back in 98 or something like that, 99, where he made like commercials, like, and they were comedic, funny, you know, commercials that that spoofed on things. And it was like the first time, um, you know, every time the the scene changed, you know, like in a play or, you know, and then you the lights would go off and then, you know, you'd have to move furniture around in, on the stage. My brother would show he would project a, a, like a four minute commercial back to back two or three of them um, and directed them. And they were funny as hell. Um, so I, I wonder if other communities uh, did it out at the university level. Yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've heard of Filipino culture nights. Um, I, I think there's a really big, uh, uh, the spirit of theater and of performance that exists in the Filipino American um, community. Um, I haven't really, I mean, to be honest, I haven't seen something on the scale of a, a VSA culture show just yet. Mm. Um, like I know the one at Berkeley, you know, it's, it fills up Zellerbach Hall, which is the, the, the main auditorium at Berkeley. And um, I think it's like a 30 or $40,000 project each year. So, right. Yeah. They're, they're big, especially USC and UCLA. Um, I haven't been to one in many years, but I, I would love to go and, and check those out. They're, they're fun. They're a lot of fun. See what right. they, uh, how they're like ingenuity, you know, uh, entertainment ingenuity at the most raw level. Right. And the parents come out and like, you know, the younger cousins come out and it's really a, a family ordeal. So, yeah, it's great. It's a great, uh, great time of, of year for um, your, uh, your, your child or your, your student that attends uh, these universities. Mm-hmm. Speaking of university, um, was it something that you always wanted to do uh, teach at uh, the college level? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Switching it up. Um, no, I, I don't think, I don't think it was, I think I kind of stumbled in into it as well. Um, Everything my, is stumbling into these things. I'm just stumbling it. Yeah. I just happened to be level. in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But no plan. I mean, that's the beauty of this all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, Vietnamese folks believe in fate, you know, so yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um yeah I, I I feel like it's very fateful you know I I didn't realize I mean I've been asking my parents a lot now about what um what we did or what um, our family members did and our grandparents did in Vietnam before they had left and so um, a lot of them were involved in, in teaching and so I, I kind of didn't know that as a part of my own heritage but um having stumbled into Asian American studies uh I had actually wanted to pursue a PhD after um, getting my finishing my undergraduate degree um, because I wanted to emulate these these professors that um, had such a, a, a profound impact on me and my my understanding of identity through Asian American studies right I, I really did feel like it was a, a sort of cultural awakening um, and so uh, didn't get into a couple of PhD programs um, after graduating from undergrad you know I, I think I could have used a little bit more focus and I, I didn't really know, I think then the um, 
what the qualifications were or what what the kind of grit that you needed to have to really silo yourself and focus and, and be a part of the academy or the ivory tower and so um i i ended up getting into uh a graduate program in asian american studies at san francisco state <clears throat> and i think through there um and i, I want to speak to a, a lot of the mentors that i had um professor isabel pelode um, professor mai nyung lei um a lot of the the folks you know at, at at San Francisco State in the College of Ethnic Studies, it's one of the only places that had once had a Vietnamese American Studies Center. Um, and so there had been this history of Vietnamese American scholars at San Francisco State. Um, DVAN, another organization that I work with, has a pretty significant presence at SF State. And so I was able to explore a little bit more about Vietnamese American literature, identities, history. Um, and then ended up writing my, my thesis on intergenerational trauma amongst Vietnamese American college students, which kind of ties into this uh, VSA, UNAFSA narrative of coming and belonging, right? Um, of becoming and belonging. And so um, it, it really, I'm not sure. I, I think <laughs> being able to, to, to lead these sorts of workshops, to facilitate these sorts of discussions, um, to feel like when I was able to share my insights and um, experience, ex just lived experiences with um, my students as a graduate student, um, as well as um, in these VSA spaces, I felt really affirmed that, you know, maybe teaching could be the, the thing that I was good at. And if I was good at it, then I would um, be able to pursue it. One of, I think if I could point to a watershed moment where I, if I could point to that moment where I was like, yeah, I think I should become, uh, I should do what I can to become a professor. Um, one of the workshops or one of the lesson plans that I had done um, about, about the Vietnamese flag and about my family's heritage and history um, and about this, this quote um, that's in Viet Thanh Nguyen's, nothing ever dies, uh, that all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory, right? Um, I had actually on a winter break presented that um, you know, got the got the slides ready, put it on the the big screen, the the, the TV at the house, um, and and went through it with my parents to talk about um, what sort of reactions I was getting from my students. Um, I remember being you know kind of getting being into it, um, doing my you know pseudo lecture with my parents, looking back at my dad, and he he was crying, and I was like, I what, like what are you crying about? And he, you know he he didn't really explain to me much at that point. But later, as I was thinking about it, you know, I think the motivation for me to pursue teaching and pursue the, the path of education really comes from um, my parents reminding me that I should always uh, help Yai, uh, go and go gang and Yi Yin right? Like those are the three things that they kind of embedded in me. Um, and they, they oftentimes reminded me that education has always been something that they wanted me to put a focus on because you know, when they came, when, you know, they experienced re-education camps, they experienced the communist regime, they experienced um, being a refugee. Education has always been one of the only thing that no one can take away from you. Um, and so, you know, with that, um, after conferring my master's in Asian American studies, um, one of my mentors, Professor Isabel Pelode, uh, offered me a section of her Vietnamese American literature class. Uh, and so from since then, uh, I've been able to teach in Asian American studies and and share my my knowledge with the with the students that I've been um, able to be a part of their journeys. Right. So, yeah, Isabel was on the show um, 
few moons ago, and uh, she is another person who said education was something she stumbled upon. It wasn't like uh, she set out to be an academic or write a book or anything. She was like happy-go-lucky and, you know, wandered around, uh, I think, L.A. And um, then one thing led to another. And, you know, here she is uh, creating all of this wonderful um, pathways for uh, people like us. Yeah. And, you know, it's I think she had been she had worked in a nail salon at one point in time, too. Right. And I, I think. And now she's like the godmother, like one of the OGs of Vietnamese that, that had written about Vietnamese American literature. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're seeing so much success from Viet- so many Vietnamese authors in the diaspora um, and, and Vietnamese American narratives being propelled into the mainstream. Um, it wouldn't would be without without her and the work that Divan has done and a, a lot of the folks that trailblaze the path for the stories to be told. So. I'm I'm going to put you on a spot in a good way. Um, and putting you on the spot means for me, like right now, I'm going to ask you a question about a, a certain memory. Uh, and if you don't have it, then we can move on to the next uh, topic. And then you could hopefully, it could percolate in your mind. But I always want to ask people who teach at uh, in a classroom, what were some of your um, most um, memorable uh classes that you've had with students and why um can you if you can jog your memory it doesn't have to be now i like i just said i put you on the spot but you know i always wonder you know is there in the last few years somebody or something that happened in in one of these classrooms that go holy shit that's like mind-blowing Ooh, um that's a good question i would say i've been teaching since um fall of 2019 so this is my third year teaching and i would say in the past couple of years um i've been teaching or the past year and a half i've been teaching online virtually right so um to to think about oh man a memory i want to say one of the one of the most pressing memories that i've had and maybe this isn't like mind-blowing in a good way but one of the things that um Students who are Vietnamese, who take classes in Vietnamese studies or Vietnamese American studies, um, take for granted, you know, the the kind of effort they might need to put in. And so I, I've had a lot of students who are you know, of Vietnamese American descent um, slack in my classes and not participate in the in the lecture or in the material or um, whatever it is, right? And I, I've also had a lot of non-Vietnamese students take my classes who. Um, become really engaged in the material because, you know, a lot of what they're learning about trauma, kind of they, they're able to tie to their own experience and um, relationships with their, their families. One of the most um, memorable experiences that I've had actually comes from a student that I had that was a, um, that was a recent immigrant from Vietnam. And um, she, <clears throat> I remember she was engaging, she engaged in the class in a way that she had she meant she mentioned during discussion that a lot of what she was learning in the class she would has never been taught in the classes that she had taken in Vietnam right mm-hmm. and that actually she wouldn't be able to go back and tell her parents who were in Vietnam about the content that was being taught in the class um, and I thought that was fairly mind blowing right that you know to learn about the breadth of Vietnamese American history identity culture um, and how it's experienced in the United States like that those experiences would be um, censored, right? Uh, in, in a, 
yeah, right, it muted in the Vietnamese uh, educational process. Um, and that same student actually introduced me to a film that was made in Vietnam, um, which is called uh, Yak Go Hoi Lang, or Hello Vietnam, that had uh, Hoi Lin and now the late Ji Tai as the, the main characters. And, and those characters were going through the process of, you know, growing old in the United States, being sent to a nursing home um, with their young Vietnamese American children who didn't understand where they came from. And so that was really mind blowing for me because it became the, like someone who, this was their first class in Viet Asian American studies. They took a Vietnamese American identities class. Um, they had no prior knowledge of any of the content that we were learning about um, and was able to introduce me to uh, a film um, that I now use in my in my classes to uh, iterate that that point right that that intergenerational divide, uh, and so to to have students like that I think mm. has been really uh, I mean has truly been mind blowing and, and breathtaking right. That was a cool film. I liked it. It was a, a funny, uh, you know, Huilin's a, a comedian, and uh, to see him take on a more serious role, right? Um, you know, it's it fascinating. Yeah funny sad there's weed involved which is like not something that you don't really see in a vietnamese yeah. film so yeah there's so many good coming out of vietnam yes and i mean i i gotta you know give props to where they're due and i'm sure you're a part of that right and i see that micah the new children's film is coming out soon so just shout out to that thank you yeah sundance hamtran jenny Chang lay all those folks uh put that uh, project together and anderson lay um you know worked very hard to to get it to um sundance and you know unfortunately it was canceled this year mm -hmm. yeah and i mean on on hamtran ham ham hamtran yeah. right um journey from the fall is what i start all of my vietnamese american studies classes with like we we have got to talk about journey from the fall right like as one of the and and what what he went through in the process of getting that film made Right. Um, yeah. To to be able to really get because I think a lot of a, a lot of my students now um, are maybe second generation, third generation. Right. Like their parents are the children of refugees. And so that history is so much more um, distant. And so movies like Journey from the Fall, I also show um, Bola Now 52. Right. Mm -hmm. To really iterate and reiterate the 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 hardships that these Vietnamese American refugees faced. Green Dragon is up there, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Green Dragon uh, by Tim Bowie um, really showcases what, you know, I think it would be right up there with Journey from the Fall. Uh, mm -hmm. Journey from the Fall is a little bit more uh, stronger in terms of, you know, the depictions being a little bit more traumatic. Right. And I think Green Dragon's like what went on in the camps and, you know, the kind of thought process that uh, refugees had uh, trying to find their footing. Mm. I actually worked, that was my first film uh, that I worked on is uh, Green Dragon. I was an uh, extra oh, wow. coordinator for uh, Tim Bowie. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. And to, to, that was what, like 20, a couple decades ago? Yeah, it was a couple decades ago. It was like 2000. Yeah, I think he was putting the project uh, together in 99, 2000. I think, yeah, we shot in, they shot in 2000, 2001 around that time period. Yeah, two yeah. decades ago. Oh man, and it's it's crazy to also think too that you know Vietnamese American history is only not even fifty years old yet, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
Yeah, it's not even 50 years old yet. Um, there's a few other bullet points that I want to ask you about. But since we're here right now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering, are there metrics that you have? And they don't have to be like, you know, official KPIs, but uh, they yeah. just sort of um, your own internal metrics on how we're improving as a community, the Vietnamese community here in America. Ooh, that's a, how we're improving as a, a community as a whole. Yeah, or are we, are we, or is it degrading? Are, are we falling apart? I mean, how do you see it? And are there metrics that you say, you know, this is what I can point to that we're getting better, or this is what we're pointing, I can point to as we're really sliding off the, the face of the earth, you know, like everything's crumbling. Yeah. Um, I think one of the indicators for me has been a lot of the elder generation um, have been a little bit more sympathetic oh, to the, wow. I, I think they've been a little bit more sympathetic and that's, a, you know, that's to say, that's not to say that there isn't a very large part of that generation that like, sometimes I hear that those, um, what's that guy on, yeah. uh, on uh, last week tonight, right? Like that type of show on the phones of a lot of my, my uncles, right? Sometimes even my dad, um, I like go in and I block those channels from his, like his YouTube. Um, but you know, some of those shows, right. Like they still are, are very pervasive in, in our elder community, but I think there are a lot of, at least through my work in San Jose's, uh, little Saigon, right. In the Vietnamese American community there, I've seen a lot of, uh, elders be much more sympathetic to, um, having conversations, right. And having these open conversations with, with the younger generation, um, and really encouraging the younger generation to step in. Um, one of the, one of the places that, uh, I've been able to to be a part of is um, and work work with is the Viet Museum in San Jose, uh, and it's like the Vietnamese museum, the history of boat people in the Republic of Vietnam museum um, that's in History Park and Kelly Park in San Jose, and um, the the one of the founders Ong um, Lok or Baklov is he was a he was also an OG colonel in in Vietnam Cong Hoa and he came here and he started this museum and in the museum are a lot of relics of war right um, and of the boat people experience. But in, in San Jose, he was also one of the first people to write about um, why Vietnamese Americans should support the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Oh, in Vietnamese. And yeah, and, and so like, it, it's stuff like that. And he, what, what's that, what, where does he lean on the whole spectrum? Um, I mean, I, I would say he's a little bit more progressive minded, definitely, right? But his, 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 uh, his tenure, right? And his pedigree as like a, a, a former soldier and, a mainstay, a pillar of the Vietnamese American community in San Jose. Um, it, I think it speaks volumes, right? And he's also, you know, I remember a conversation I had with him and he's one of the, he he mentioned that the Vietnamese American community has always, at least in San Jose, has always been um, caught up in thinking about leadership and that we have too many leaders, right? Too many leaders that want to get their point across and, you know, stake their claim to the Vietnamese community and represent it. Um, and so he's he's also really been pushing for efforts of community-based organizations, these nonprofit organizations, right, that are oftentimes led by the younger generation of folks to, to get together and organize and um, be able to open up those, those intergenerational bridges of conversation and dialogue. Um, I would say that that sort of experience to see a lot of the elder generation being more sympathetic to the causes of the youth might also be predicated in, upon um, just them knowing that they're getting older, right? And that their their generation is passing soon. I mean, Ung Lok is, I think, in his, his 80s now. 
and a lot of his friends, you know, as he, he has mentioned to me, have passed away now. And so the only he knows, you know, there's a recognition that his legacy is going to be carried on by the younger generation. And so um, in, in those sorts of moments, I think it's been easier for folks like me, right, or, or younger than me, maybe the folks in the VSA, to also be able to have these conversations about their family's experiences that they might not have had before, right? Like I, I maybe, I might say it's a metric that in my, in my Vietnamese American classes, when we do oral history, um, there aren't as many questions about, you know, who, who it is that they, they can reach out to and ask questions from, or ask, ask questions, right? Um, their parents, their aunts, uncles, their grandparents are much more receptive to sharing their experiences um, because they want to pass on this knowledge now, right? Whereas before, I think, and, and I think there's still a lot of trauma, right? Um, whereas before, they've been much more hesitant to share these parts of themselves, so... Yeah, I mean, this acknowledgement of trauma and pain is very critical to our discussion. And I think that to not talk about it and to sweep it under the rug uh, with the older generation, because I always thought to myself, I mean, for the longest time before I was doing this um, podcast, fuck them, you know, right? Their pain, you know, I didn't go through that. But oh my God, that is like the worst way to look at this. Like... <laughs> You cannot discount people's pain and you can't let, uh, I mean, we, it's natural to, to, to want to not feel and empathize uh, for somebody else's shit, especially when it gets in the way of our progress. Right. But at the same time, I mean, if we don't acknowledge it, we're gonna, we are losing people. We're losing the, 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 the game, the, the, the battle of the divide. It, it's, and that's not something we want as a community ever, ever, ever. We always have to find something to feel for each other. Um, I mean, that's just my like the way I see things lately, because I'll be perfectly honest. I was very um, apathetic to um, the way the older and I think it has to do with my dad, though, too, because my dad was apathetic. He was just like, what's the big deal, people? And he was right. never he was never locked up in the education camp. And I think for him, he had told everybody like in his family and my mom's family, his his in-laws, colonels and big guys. There's like, yo, guys, uh, we know this is going to not be pretty. Get the hell out. And I got a boat waiting down in. Yeah, you know, I got this. We're chartered. We're good. We're good to go. Meet me down here. In three days, meet me down here. Some of these guys sent pigeons over the, the wire, right? And they're like, yo, if you get locked up, you're done. We're not coming. We're not going to bail you out of jail. We're we're going to go on living our lives. And, you know, you, the, we're, this regime is not going to fall. It's not going to go down. We're going to keep it intact. Because all the big guys, I think, thought that they were going to um, they were gonna prevail. They, they I don't think that they knew the intel the way. Or the, my father read a lot of history, so he knew where this was going to go. Right. And so he asked people like multiple times, come down, meet me at the boat. None of them did it. And so by the time he took off, he was like, that's your bad. So I always kind of carried this sort of weird pride about that, um, you know, but that is so unhealthy, especially when we're doing the work that we're doing to talk about the trauma and the pain. It's like, no, 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 we have to acknowledge that this is going on. And I think it there's a, 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 a there's a, um, there's a connection to all of that shit all the way down to something like BLM because it's the ability to empathize um, and the practice of, of empathizing with these people 
who have completely different experiences than what we have uh, is that is what's going to make our community better. Bottom line. Right. I mean, full stop word, you know, like <clears throat> I think compassion, we need more com compassion and empathy um, for the elder generation who in a lot of ways, I, I also feel that that very deep rooted sense of like, fuck them, you know, like, why should we care about them? Yeah. You know, this is our, this is, this is, this is our home now, right? Like y'all left your home, you know, and if you don't want to like get with it, get with the program here, then, you know, so be it. Right. And then I also think about like, I've also thought about like how that approach furthers that divide. Right. Like I, I see students talking about like how they're, um, how they can't even talk to their parents anymore. Right. Because there's so much like at the dinner table, there's always so many conversations about politics. Right. And that, um, turns into this, you know, a screaming contest, a yelling contest about the different, you know, what people stand for and who they support. And so I think thinking about compassion and empathy, and I, I think thinking about the, the process of understanding how these issues make their way into our families, right, and how they um, impact gatherings around the family table, I feel like, um, oh, man, I, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it, it's hard. I, I think, um, oh man, I just, I totally just lost my train of thought. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to pick it up from there. I feel like yeah. what, what I think when we're sitting at the family table for me is if we keep pulling out guns on each other and trying to prove our point, it gets nowhere. It absolutely goes nowhere. And that's why I think like when we're at the dinner table, the, the thing that we, I try to focus on is like, okay, where do we, what, where's our common ground? Where do we share it? And it's going to sound weird, but I try to beat them at that game. Mm. Try to beat them at that game. Like, can you beat me in where we're sharing our common story? Or can you beat me at the, at the love game? You know, like uncle, I know you have these like crazy ass prejudiced ideas and, and, and viewpoints, but I'm not going to go toe to toe with you there. Cause we're both going to lose. But right. how about I beat you at the, the, the game of compassion and love at the dinner table and unite and, and let's go back to figuring out the, the fun times that we had growing up. You know, I have uncles that are um, you know, 15, 20 years old, but we're very close because, right. you know, we, we talk about uh, business and we talk about off color things and, you know, things that that happen in Vietnam and we share things that are not political. And I was like, well, let's focus on that stuff. Let's talk about how wonderful those memories are, you know, and. So I, I find myself now um, going into that. And these are guys that were never in the war. They were, you know, they were in their, you know, uh, teens when they got to the United States. They were, you know, babies when they got here. Um, but they still carry these heavy, um, very different viewpoints than I do. Right, right. And I, I think going back to the, going back to this division, I, I, would, I would say highlighting two, I think, really crucial moments in Viet recent Vietnamese American history um, one of them is has to be the insurrection, right? right. Um, the, the showing, the waving of flags, uh, and just the presence of Vietnamese American people at the Capitol. And then the second has to be, and I know you had recently done a show with Tan Tan and it's for Afghans, the fall of Kabul, right? And the parallels that were drawn between um, what was going on in Afghanistan and the, the fall of Saigon. And I think, you know, po social, politically, geographically, uh, in, in world, you know, in, in world history, those two moments have kind of been places where maybe we're able to find some common ground and share that sense of um, empathy and compassion for folks that 
have a similar experience that we do while at the same time looking at ourselves hard in the mirror and saying, is that really who we are, right? Um, and, and, I, and I'm thinking that, you know, from, from those points as we're, as we're talking about um, kind of getting back into, into family, right? Getting back into uh, the things that uh, tie tie us to our relatives, and one of the one of the one of the things that I've been able to to do much more recently is um, ask my parents about questions um, and have them show pictures of themselves um, back in Vietnam that they were able to bring over um, with me and start to uh, archive them and organize them digitally. Um, that's just a, I think a personal project that I've been able to take on and. Um, really get into my own uh, understanding of my history and where I come from, right? And so I, I think it's in those moments when we don't need it, don't feel like we need to talk about the politics, don't need to feel like we're, we're talking about everything that folks are, other folks are worried about, right? Um, in, in the circumstances of the pandemic, when we're so much more isolated and we have so much more time to talk to each other, um, that's, I, I think that's definitely been a, a breakthrough for, for me, at least in my own, um, uh, in the locus of my Vietnamese community, right? And so, you know, I, I think as, as a Vietnamese community, we made a lot of um, breakthroughs, right? We've been able to accomplish a lot and to have these very important conversations. But I think what the pandemic, the opportunity that the pandemic has offered us um, is to really think about the things that matter the most to us as a community, right? Yeah. Now, um, with the... Um with the the conversation we just had about like um you know the the elders and you know the way we see things the way they often see things um there is um this idea of them and us um within our own communities and the advent of a organization like pivot or the um you know cookie zoom's uh the translator and the interpreter uh, yeah the interpreter the interpreter the interpreter um all of these things um and i've talked to um people about this it's like how do we walk on this tight rope without um without falling down you know you can't just like i i feel like we just can't bombard them with uh this intellectual uh game of like we know more right we, we <laughs> we're more informed uh um we are not getting our shit from you know really shitty news sources and but that's that's a losing argument to people who have their ears closed because now there's like uh, older aunts and aunts that i just i can't talk about this stuff with there's no way to break through uh, how do we do that you know oh man <laughs> that's that's the age-old question I, I think what we've been um experiencing in the past couple of years, you know, especially with the proliferation of misinformation, uh, Viet fact check, Viet M vote, um, Viet COVID, uh, the interpreter and Nguyen Get, right? Like all of these um, sources that have been vetted by uh, the, the teams that are working on them, right? Um, with factual evidence um, being presented in both English and Vietnamese, I think has been really helpful. I think for me, um, speaking from as a child of refugees with very limited uh, Vietnamese proficiency, right? Like I took two, two years of uh, Vietnamese language in, in college. So, but even then I, I feel like there's a, it's difficult to communicate and really get the essence of what I'm trying to say across, right? 
Um, having these resources at hand to be able to share with my, my family members, my parents, um, the community, right? Uh, and to be a vehicle for that information has been really helpful. And I, I think what one of the things that we've seen during the pandemic, right, I, I think is this um, shift in the role that the, the younger generation plays, right? Like if there is still that kind of relationship or connection between the parents and the youth, um, like growing up for me, I remember, you know, I was the one that took care of all the government documents that came in the mail from my, my parents, right? right? And so I was the one that served as that interpreter translator for them. And so I, I saw myself and me, my younger sister and I taking on that role of being that mediator for this information that has been helpful um, and having it already readily available in Vietnamese and the Vietnamese that they speak to, I think is like a, a, a very crucial point. Um, having that available to them for them to have access to has helped um, at least a little bit, if not, if not a lot, you know, and, and it has helped us in this fight against this disinformation, right? Um, but I would really say that, you know, I, I'm working with um, the Vietnamese American Roundtable, which is a, I'm the executive director for the Vietnamese American Roundtable or VAR that is based in San Jose. And, you know, as an organization, um, it, it came together as a, a group of 1.5 second generation volunteers really looking to build bridges between the elder and younger generations, right? Um, through, through civic empowerment, through civic participation, um, through community building and events, right? And also through just cultural learning. And I think at the nexus of those three areas of focus um, and, and with the help of the folks that are in the organization, um, bringing people together in community, right? Whether that be virtual community on Zoom, if our elder generations know how to work Zoom, or whether that be um, at an event like a Black April or a Tenthu Deng commemoration, right? And being able to open up those, those, um, those avenues of communication at, the, at these sorts of community events where we, uh, where there's a regular interaction of young and old, right? Um, I think has been really helpful in, in sort of spreading the word um, and sharing the resources that we as the younger generation have access to. What, uh, how did that get started? The um, American round, Vietnamese American round table. Yeah. Um, so I had gotten, I had also stumbled upon the Vietnamese American round table uh, and had gotten involved because of a couple of the folks that were on the board of um, VAR had been, uh, I, had, I had worked with in, in Pivot. And so I had known that there was a group of Vietnamese folks in San Jose that were a little bit more um, progressive minded or youth, youth uh, oriented. Um, the organization itself uh, started with a group of volunteers in 2013. A lot of them um, folks that were from Va Bank or that are now attorneys, um, the Vietnamese American Bar Association, hmm. Association of Northern California, folks that were um, generally representatives or had been taking a part of Vietnamese community and other community spaces that wanted to get together and form a roundtable of uh, input, insights, experience um, in an organization that really focused on that intergenerational divide. Um, and since then, you know, in, in 2017, it incorporated as a, a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, in 2019, I was brought on as one of the first part-time program managers. And um, in this past year, 2021, been really fortunate enough to um, be elevated to the position of uh, executive director. And so it's a lot of work, <laughs> Kenneth. I mean, like, I think working, like I, working with the Vietnamese American community is tough um, for, because, you know, we, it's just so hard to be able to speak the language that um, our community speaks, right, and to really get the messaging across to know that um, 
in, in our best good faith effort that we're really not trying to leave people behind, right? And that the work that we're doing is not to, like you said, right, like to participate in this game where we both lose and that we both feel fatigued um, from talking about all these issues, but really that, that we can act, we can mobilize on, around these issues, we can organize um, and we can break bread around the table um, or, you know, like, yeah, cool rolls together, right? Um, while, while talking about culture, while understanding the context of our history, uh, and while sharing that information so that our legacies are not lost in the process, right? I was literally Kung Rose last night with the three uncles that are on the other side, literally doing that last night. Right. So funny <laughs> that you say that. <laughs> Kung Rose and like sipping Henny, you know, Henny yeah. and Coke. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you say that. Have you been back to Vietnam? Ooh, I have not. I have never been back to Vietnam. And I think that's, if I were to ever want to do a documentary about my life, it would probably lead up to the point where I'm like trying to go to, uh, trying to get back to Vietnam. Um, my parents have also never been. Mm -hmm. Ooh, okay. Is it an intentional um, decision or just because you guys have never gotten to it? Yeah. Oh, I, I had always thought that when I, go to Vietnam or when I like Vietnam, right? Or go back home to Vietnam, this place that I have never known as home, um, that I would be able to bring my parents with me and that they would be open to uncovering a lot of these places that they had been a part of with me, right? Um, my parents are reluctant <laughs> to say the least. Um, my, my dad, I mean, he works for, uh, my dad works for Lockheed Martin, which is a, an, a defense contractor. Um, and you know he's always had this this sense that he doesn't want to go to Vietnam, the communist country, because one, it's it's not the country that he had known and left, and that two, that it would jeopardize his his work. Um, you know whether that's a a, a a truthful belief or not, I'm not so sure yet. But I think they've they've been more or less excuses for him um, not to go back. Um, we don't have much family there, um, like cousins, like extended cousins and. Um, uncles, aunts, but uh, my relationship with Vietnam has been complicated because I, I think definitely like I would want to go back, um, you know, and a part of me also feels like I would want to go back with my friends and hang out in Saigon and party and do all that sort of stuff, right, and experience it for myself, um, whereas this other part of me really wants to go back and make that journey, be a part of that journey for myself and with my parents. Um, I will say though that this relationship with Vietnam and what it is now has been kind of, you know, one of the examples I would say that, you know, my at home, I watch, um, I watch rap Viet with my parents. And that's like one of the ways that they've been able to, mm -hmm. ha has kind of um, uh, uprooted this belief that Vietnam is just this like horrible communist place that where everyone is in poverty, right? Um, and I think those, those kinds of beliefs I still had held with my parents that, adds that contributes to that reluctance. Um, but, you know, future journeys to Vietnam, one of the places that, you know, over through the pandemic, I, I was fortunate enough also to um, start a, a new relationship. And I think if, if such, whenever the pandemic ends, um, I, I imagine that I would want to go with her first and explore our homeland um, together uh, and then bring that experience back with me to bring my parents back to Vietnam before they pass because I, they're getting older. So yeah, before I get into that conversation, I just want to um, 
comment on how adorable because I think, you know, we've been um, either in contact or on IG or Facebook together for, you know, way before we established contact. And um, I remember following you and just seeing this new introduction to your life and that kind of stuff. It always warms my heart. It really does. Oh so really, congratulations. And uh, I'm very happy for you. Thank you so much, Kenneth. And <clears throat> it's it's a long, it's it's rough. It's a long distance relationship. She's She's uh, Vietnamese from Houston, Texas. So that's a whole nother, I mean, it, it's also, yeah, a very surreal conversation that we had um, when we started the relationship. But uh, I would say, you know, I would be, I'd be disappointed if you weren't at the wedding. So, oh <laughs> uh, yes, please invite me. I would, two seconds, I will be there. Um, I, I can't wait to, 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 to attend. With pleasure, I would come. Yes. So yeah, going back to this whole uh, parental discussion and um, Vietnam, I, I feel like um, my brother moved there 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, before then, we, my family and I, we were uh, going back quite a bit. We have a factory there. And uh, there was a moment I was standing, I think it was a place, I can't remember the name of it, Taoding or something. God, I, I'm so ignorant. I should know this. I was with a friend and his mother, his mother just bought um, some condos and I was standing in the courtyard of this high rise and I was looking around and I was like, where I'm, I'm in Singapore. This is Singapore. This is not right. anything related to Vietnam that my parents or my uncles and aunts talked about or any of the books that we read. This is a completely different place in the world of in the history of what we could imagine and i remember seeing like um you know young women with like these cute dogs walking you know and it was just like uh it was so surreal and i thought to myself this is maybe five years ago too and i thought to myself like all of my mom and dad's friends that refused to go back to vietnam um it's literally like being stuck in a different world uh different mm -hmm. chapter of of living in, in in the they're like stuck in the metaverse somewhere in another person's channel or something like that right that there's this other shit going on over here that's real in our time that they have no that they that they refuse to believe that that is going on i mean these people really believe that vietnam is like still war-torn impoverished everybody's like begging on the streets and it was like the furthest from that that they could they they just refused to look at it and at that point um i i realized that that we all have a decision to make um you can either step into this portal and be transported into a different modern age of vietnam or you can make the choice to hang on to this really bitter memory a, a representation of what it was like or what you think it was like you know so that's like the hardest part that I kind of um, have to deal with um, in response to the pain of the memory of what a lot of Viet older Vietnamese people left. And um, I really, uh, Philip, I really um, encourage you to uh, go back to Vietnam um, as soon as you can. Mm. As soon mm. as you can. I I mean, that, that pain... Um... I feel like I've inherited a lot of it. And, and I think that's the, that's a shame for me. And, you know, thinking about, um, and 
I, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm scared, right? Like I, I'm really afraid of what, what there is to th that holds in Vietnam, right? Because I also do feel like there is this, there has always been this pull for me to be there, right? Or to, to, to be in, in this place or with this place or associated to this place that my, my parents have called home or the Skwe Hung, right? That I've, I've never really been able to experience yet, right? Like I'm at this point in my life, I'm not really sure where my Skwe Hung is, right? Yeah. Um, and, and like you were saying, like this, this, this portal, like I, for better or for worse, I've, all, I've thought that Vietnamese people are time travelers for better or for worse. And for a lot of like folks like my parents and a lot of the folks that you're talking about too, like their, their idea of Vietnam is locked temporarily, right? And in, in time to this place before 1975, right? And I was also talking about like the language that they spoke and what they wore and the culture and what the, the hustling, bustling streets look like. Um, and sometimes they're very, they are very reluctant. They refuse to move beyond that, um, that period of time. Uh, it's, it's rough. I, I think one of the, one of the, another really surreal mind blowing thing that, um, has been a regular practice when I, when I bring up Vietnam with my parents is that, um, my dad, my dad and I will go on Google earth, right. And we'll, we'll look, he remembers like all of the, the old addresses, the places that he would use, he used to frequent and we would pop him into Google earth. And he would say like, yeah, where that, like, you know, that cell phone provider building is now, like, that's where we used to live. Right. Like that's where we had a printing press and like this street, I remember, you know, I would get into the fights on this street with like your, your uncles. Right. And, and I think it's, it's always shown me the sense that they, they want to feel that sense of Gui Hung as well. But maybe for them, it's it's that much harder to to be reconnected to the the land that we call home. Yeah, and often you have to remind yourself that like the people that left, majority of them were people who had a lot of shit. They right. a lot of shit. You know, let's not let's just keep it real. They you know people who had several you know my parents several businesses. They had like deep roots and just to like flip a switch and they're gone and everything's taken away. So there's that right. painful memory. And then they rebuild it here and they got, you know, they got their shit going on and it's like wonderful here. It's like, why am I even going to take a minute to even think about like that painful memory that we left behind? Right. Yeah. But I, I could see you in Vietnam. Um, just really, uh, you know, Saigon's like New York on steroids. You know, <laughs> it really is. It's, Somebody said, somebody said on the show, uh, one of my uh, guests, he said, uh, yeah, Saigon is like twice the size and energy of, of a New York. And it's like, um, if you, if you don't get to experience that, that you're really missing out on life, you know, it's got yeah. nothing to do politically with anything else other than that. It is a, a, it's quite a, a show, you know, when you, right. when you step inside of district one or, you know, you're on the, 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 the different areas in district, district one. And it's, it's just like you see all the charming things about the culture and then it's like magnified because it's like in your face and it's like just the environment and the the the, the ambiance of, of all of the traffic and and the sights and the sounds it's um yeah it's a it's a very special place yeah oh my gosh i'm i'm longing for it now you know yeah. um yeah. it's it's uh you know i i hope to talk to you one day um when you come back uh from from it and you know um do you listen to vietcetera or watch anything from vietcetera i do, do i do yes yeah. 
their their podcast that they put out uh there's six or seven that they do i think 22 this year uh that they added on but um if you listen to some of them um like gaima with tui min or some of these you're like wait they're more much more advanced than our san jose oc community the, the way of thinking these these young women and men have a completely they're gonna talk about condoms and, and safe sex and they talk about right. you know um their professional linkedin uh strategies you know there's all kinds of stuff that 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 they like the on. life and times of a young yeah. professional a young vietnamese professional right completely in yeah. in the diaspora mm-hmm. yeah no no in vietnam in vietnam wait this isn't Viet cetera also oh Viet cetera has two arms they have the Viet cetera that that reports on Vietnam, and then they have a Vietcetera International, which more diaspora. But the Vietcetera that that I'm talking about is the one that reports on the Vietnamese lifestyle. I Vietnam. see. Yeah, and the because Vietnamese... Tuimin and there's like Tao Nhi Le, I think has a show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so and Tuan Le, like there's all of this like amazing you know content that Vietcetera puts out, and um, you could get a glimpse of what truly is uh, the youth of Vietnam today. Mm. that I wouldn't just I probably wouldn't just be able to get through listening to V-pop right <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think V-pop has its place too right it, it has its place um, in you know their music videos and um, Vietnamese movies have had has this place I mean all of it creates this new ecosystem that um, that we can turn to uh, as we're making these conversations and I think it's important because the January 6th uh, day uh and the flag the flag that you Mm -hmm. just showed um these are all things that are important in the conversation but we also have to i think combine it with the modern vietnam and what i I don't even think people there i would venture to say the majority of the people have no idea that we even think about these things we right this diaspora we are so focused on you know this myopic um uh point of Vietnamese American history or culture, but like 97 million of those uh, uh, homeland, um, our country people, they're they're not, it's not even in their consciousness um, to, to, it doesn't affect their life at at one, one bit. And here we are living in a reality where it does affect us. And it, and it's, and we're, we, we don't know sometimes if we're of that particular group of people or we belong to you know this whole i mean obviously we we share aspects of everything but right you know the reality is is not the same um for 97 million other people right right yeah and and oh my god i mean that's another mind-blowing thing to think about is that our our families i mean my at least my family's understanding of vietnam really is confined to limited the yeah right like the 30 years of this like thousand year old history and how the the country itself has grown since for for the past 50 years right where it's fucked up thing to say but they're limited to Fukuoka and the line center you know yeah i mean i think that i mean i think it's a fucked up but really valid like i mean it's not as fucked up but i think it's a valid thing to say too because i mean i i definitely do feel like our our community for all the res- the healing and the resilience that we're, we're we're preaching about now um has been caught up in constant mourning you know yes um and we need, I, I do feel like we do need to move beyond that and really try to transcend these boundaries that we've placed upon ourselves. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, morning, morning fatigue. Yes, definitely. 
morning and that's why all you know all the songs that they listen to are this you know like oh, freaking totally. dang wing all day <laughs> dude totally and and you know um i talked to uh uh Kao Ying about this you know, the, the host of mc uh, the mc of, of paris by night and right we've had this discussion of like how is it that um the majority of the vietnamese american artists of pbn of paris by night it's sort of like they're stuck in this amberish uh fossilized just like uh sepia yes yeah, sepia snapshot of exactly sepia snapshot of of Viet, vietnamese music and she broke it down she's like yo we've tried to bring on um new acts and we've tried to bring on like avant-garde performers and people who would stretch the the but they don't sell Right. They, they won't sell. They and you know, she's right. I, I it that's such a common sense thing to 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 say. And I don't know why I, I was always so blinded by the the you know, the 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 fact that we couldn't evolve into another um another form of like, you know, the Amer Americans have rap or jazz. So why right. could we have innovated but the dollar of the dollar value of uh nostalgia will win out at the end of the day. Right, right. And I, I think sometimes we get really caught in the cycle of nostalgia, like uh, nostalgia a little bit too much. And that's that repetition of nostalgia and this constant mourning and to think about our legacy as always a sense of loss. I think it really um, muddles, you know, what 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 is it that we have found since coming to the United States and or, or you know, since coming from the war and being able to survive. Um, we get so caught up in this this act or this um, process of survival that I feel like for a lot of the older generation, they they don't allow themselves to thrive, right? And this might also come from that refugee mindset that, you know, we gotta, as Balfi says, right? Like you gotta change the oil in your car, your goddamn self, right? And it's like <laughs> this, this survivor mentality, this refugee mentality that um, at times reminds us of where we come from, but also at times prohibits us from really experiencing the full breadth of what being Vietnamese means. Yeah. Um, Philip, today we've gone over a lot of the, if not everything, uh, the bullet points that I wanted to get into. Um, we've touched upon um, many things and I'm wondering if there's anything that you, um, if there's anything left on the table that you'd like to bring up? Because uh, I'm sure that, you know, obviously I want you back on the show uh, in a few months or next year or whatever, whenever it's appropriate and you're reaching out and you say, hey, I, I have some new stuff and, you know, we, I want to discuss. But today, is there anything that you'd like to um, talk to talk about more more stuff that we're leaving on the table? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's a good. Um, we got a little bit into the media. We literature, you've had authors on the show that have talked about their work and, and that that sort of art. I. I the landscape of Vietnamese America and the, the, the sort of generational divide and healing between generations. Uh, oh man, I'm not sure. Have we, have we covered, have we covered most of it? I think we've covered. Yeah, we covered most of it and then some, we covered most of that. And then some, uh, this idea of, of Vietnamese writers, I feel like I've only gotten to a few. I, I've not, um, you know, it was so weird in the beginning of this uh, podcast journey. I, I said to myself, I'm never going to go near um, podcast, um, it, any podcast episodes with writers because uh, it, it would require me to do a lot of reading and it would just slow me down. Right. Um, God, what a fallacy. What what a mistake uh, to, to, to think about. But um, 
yeah, as I'm slowly able to um, get through uh, the reading now, I'm, you know, uh, approaching more writers to 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 come on the show. And Viet Thanh Nguyen uh, and I have known each other. He was our um, my my last year at VSA uh, USC. He was the incoming advisor. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? He was this young, you know, handsome, you know, he looked like a student at the right, time. Right, right. You know, and so I've I've had um, you know bumped into him many times. Hamtran used to uh, live with uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen in L.A., and um, while uh, v while Ham was here in L.A., well, I would go over to Ham's house and hang out with him and, and Anderson Lay, and you know we'd run into Viet and Lan, and so there was this always this sort of connective tissue. Um, right. And then not so long ago, uh, there was um, a Vietnamese uh, parents group here in L.A that we, you know, I've ran into Viet once there and because uh, they did it at their house. And then I ran into Viet at, at the mall, you know, and uh, <laughs> with his his son and my daughter at the time. And, you know, I've, I've always wanted to, you know, I, I think in your, um, the episode that you did, I think the accent, right? With yes, Bao. it's accent. It was with Bao and some of the film filmmakers. Yeah, I think Carol was on, uh, yes. on filmmakers and, and Viet Thanh Nguyen. And I, that was the first time I mentioned to, to Viet, like, I'd love to have him on the show. But it's like, I, you know, after reading The Sympathizer, there's just, you realize, like, this is one, one of the most badass thinkers that we have in the Vietnamese community. Yeah. What could I possibly ask him, you know? Uh, and I know that's a fallacy in, in, in that way of thinking. But, um, yes, I would love to have him on the show and, and, and finally, you know, uh, ask him a, a lot of the questions that that i have for him yeah I, I feel i feel that same way um about about him i i mean still even after you know really putting together these shows with him yeah no definitely because i i would say that you know his works the sympathizer nothing ever dies the committed um along with t t Bui, um with uh another like land's work in lay spiritus work like all of these these scholars that are uh, in vietnamese american studies that i had that have been constantly reading and rereading as a part of my own oh. um, research, right? Like they, these are my, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, th these are my heroes, right? These are a lot of my, my idols that I've come to um, admire and, and to be able to be in this community space with them. And I mean, like you, I, I would say that you and, and what you've been able to accomplish with the Vietnamese podcast too, and the work that um, y'all are doing as a collective to uh, amplify, you know, Vietnamese, Vietnamese voices, um, and to really reshape and reframe the narratives that we have been so accustomed to, right? Um, it's it's still very, I still feel like a fan in a lot of the, in so many ways, you know? Um, but to know that there are people out there that are able to capture so eloquently the experiences of um, our community as a whole, mm. what we've been through, what we continue to go through while also instilling a sense of um, their their own humanity and what they're still you know, because there's there's so much there's so much to still um, think about and grapple with, right? As we continue to evolve, um, and and I, you know, I'm not sure if this is another conversation topic, but the way that we have been able to evolve through arts and culture, right? And I mean, also through what we're seeing with East Films and this um, new come, this like up and this up and coming, this new coming of um, Vietnamese American representation in film and media, right? Um, I mean, with what East Films has done, the sympathizer is also going to be made into an A24 um, series. I know that Ocean Vuong is also getting, um, it, it's going to be uh, 
Unearthed or Briefly Gorgeous is also going to be made into a, a movie, I think, right? So, so this moment of Vietnamese-ness is... It's badass. I, I mean, it's hot. It's badass. It's bad. We, we are hot right now. And yeah. that's that's the crazy thing. Yeah. You know, I uh, I had this um, for a whole year. Um, I mean, I went to the BTS concert a few weeks ago. Up until mm -hmm. that point, I was always like, oh, we got to catch up with the Koreans. We got to beat them. And, you know, I talk about this all the time. And now I'm like, no, no, no. After BTS, that, that, that's a mistake because how BTS did it is through inclusion and not through some competitive bullshit and it's just the same with our elders it's like if we compete for the airwaves to to block them to get them out of the way and to surpass their it, we're going to lose this we need everybody's participation we need to be inclusive and find where we share similarities um because otherwise uh it's going to be like the vietnamese racing against the korean in my head i'm i'm, I'm right. guilty of that so now today it's like you, me, um, all of the people we've talked about on this podcast, it's now um, which is, you know, how do we uh, unite and where do we find and celebrate our, our similarities and our, our rituals and our, our pendants, right? Right. Where do we, where do we dig in there? And uh, so this is uh, the journey that I want to take for the next two decades. You know, I, I would love to do this work uh, for the next two decades and 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 just uh, nerd out on all of the intricacies that we have as, as Vietnamese people, um, both connected to the homeland today and 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 people who have left. You know, I think that all of it is valid now. Yeah, and I, I definitely feel like um, the deprivation of Vietnamese-ness in, in my own up, up uh, upbringing, I think has really contributed to this, this desire to really right? Um, to, to really figure out and, and to feel like the work in the Vietnamese community. And I hope that this is for all the podcast listeners and all the folks that are, you know, for one reason or another inspired by this conversation that we're having to, to feel like work doing work in the Vietnamese community, to be, to being Vietnamese, to, um, understanding the how how complex Vietnamese identity is, but still be able being able to embrace it, um, that it doesn't feel that it doesn't feel daunting, right? That that it really is. It can be as easy as like picking up your phone and listening to a podcast, right? Um, or or picking up a book and reading one, or really hopping onto a YouTube video and watching uh, folks like Andrew and Wing talk about food and colonialism, yep. right? That this history and this experience and this knowledge is that so accessible to us, so. Yeah, uh, Vo Xin Vung, I think, mentioned something. I hope I'm not butchering this, but this idea of radical okayness that, mm. you know, we should just be okay with celebrating the beauty of we of who of who we are. And it shouldn't be some like extravagant explanation. You know, we should just it, oh, be okay with with celebrating things that don't relate to all of that uh, history. And just like here and now, we're okay. And let's celebrate. Let's party. Let's, right. you know, do us. We do we. Yeah. And I think, I mean, with that, um, this idea of, I am, I, I think I'm going to try my best to go to Vietnam as soon as I can. I think that I got to be radically okay with yes. coming to terms with that Absolutely. part of my, my life. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I'm sure you, I mean, you probably know a lot of people in, in Vietnam and, Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, you, the, at all times there's people there that we all know. You know, we could just and you put it on Facebook. You're like, hey, if there's anybody in Vietnam at, during this window, 
and you'll get like so many people reaching out, you know, and letting you know, hey, I'm here. And all it takes is a few dinners and you're like, okay, this is my second home now. Right. Mm. It's that easy. Mm. Yeah, it really is that easy. Whew. Hopefully we'll be able to eat together. I mean, I've, I've only seen those videos about all the Saigon street food. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think um, if you're in LA or if I'm in San Jose, uh, we, we just let's make that happen. Let's eat locally first um, in each other's town here in, uh, in America. And, you know, hopefully one day you and I are passing each other's uh, passing each other in the halls in one of these universities. Mm. Yes, definitely. You know, <laughs> That would be something that would be kick ass, right? Yeah. I mean, I and that's a, a whole last another conversation to have is that we we just do need more Vietnamese American representation, you know, in all yeah. walks of life, especially in, in the academy. So to to also be, you know, to start this conversation that we've had this morning off with you thinking about, you know, your your own journey of becoming a teacher. I feel like the Vietnamese, this part of our Vietnamese identity is also so rooted in how we're able to to share and connect with people. Yes. Um, so, well, thank you, Philip. I appreciate your time today. It was it was uh, it was all. It's always so, it's always so heartwarming to to sit with somebody that you don't know, and after you know a few hours, you're just like, ah, oh, let's go get some pho or something. To Honestly, eat. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is awesome. Well, Philip, thank you very much. And uh, don't hang up. I'm just going to end the recording. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Philip. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.